Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech and offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Lorna Bennett, Project Engineer at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry players working to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal energy sectors. For having an average lifespan of 20 to 25 years, many of the world's turbines installed during the 1990s and early noughties are now reaching the end of their life expectancy. This raises the question, what happens to them when they stop working? Whilst they are excellent producers of green energy, challenges arise when it comes time to their decommissioning. The size of components and the durable materials used during manufacturing are difficult to reuse and recycle. Despite around 80 to 85% of the weight of a wind turbine being recyclable, wind turbine blades still represent a significant challenge to the environment that the industry is working hard to find a solution for. In today's episode, we'll hear from experts across the offshore wind industry who are working on projects that look to improve the best practices and procedures currently in place to ensure these green energy producers remain as green in their end of life. So without further ado, let's meet today's guests. Hi, I'm Steve Ross, and I'm the Digital and Data Lead for the RE Catapult. Hi, I'm Michael Forbes, and I'm the Refurbishment Centre Manager for Renewable Parts. Hi, I'm Anna Vellendorf, and I'm a Research Impact Fellow in Circular Economy and Offshore Wind at the University of Leeds. We'll start by pinning down some of the terminology we'll be using today. In this month's technical challenge, each of you will be asked to explain three renewable energy concepts for us in less than 30 seconds. Michael, would you please explain to us what we mean by circular economy? The term circular economy is something that most people have heard of now. I think the world's moving from a take-use-waste model to a circular one, where we're looking at finding a route back to use for parts that have been used in the past, and whether that's repair, refurbish, remanufacture, or even to reduce the parts and parts harvesting. Eve, could you please explain what we mean by decommissioning? Yeah, well, I think within the wind sector, it's something which we're not familiar with because, especially for offshore wind, we, we've not really decommissioned very much. Recently, did the uh, took down the Blythe site, I think, which was one of the first ever um, offshore wind farms which we had in Europe. It, it's a, an issue uh, which is definitely going to impact on the on the sector over the next uh, three to five years when the round one sites start to uh, be coming up to that point whereby either decommissioning or life extension becomes uh, quite important. So decommissioning to, to the wind industry, I think, is really about an understanding at this stage of uh, what those costs are, what the impacts will be for uh, recycling the main components, such as blades, the turbines, the monopiles, and most certainly the cables, and, and what the impact will be at the point whereby those turbines are, are no longer there. So do we get to a point whereby we repower, um, or do we just leave the site completely from that point of view, um, hopefully in the way in which we, we found it? And Anne, can you please explain to us what the difference is between recycling, reuse and repurposing? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so these are terms that are often confused with one another, but reuse is basically about using components again for the same purpose. So, for example, a tower stays tower, a cable stays a cable. Repurposing is then using a component again, but for a different purpose. So, for example, a turbine blade could be sectioned into pieces that are then used uh, as part of a bridge. 
Recycling is the collection and the preparation of waste into materials that can re-enter the economy, that can re-enter production cycles. And crucially, a material is only considered recycled if it is being reprocessed uh, into a new component. Why are we now beginning to wake up and discuss end of life of offshore wind turbines? First of all, it is about raising awareness, the growing of the awareness about the true cost of offshore wind decommissioning and the waste management, which uh, has been forecasted to be underestimated uh, and may actually be four to ten times higher than anticipated. It is also about recent public outcries that we're seeing, for example, because of photos of blades that are being landfilled. I think that has driven uh, a massive effort in research and innovation for particularly turbine blades and the use management. And as Steve said before, basically the first generation of offshore wind turbines is starting to reach their end of use. And so now we realize that we really need those solutions more urgently. And that is why we see a, a growing effort in that subject area. Thank you. Anne. And as Anne just said there, Steve, you've been speaking to the industry. So do you have a perspective from that side of the discussion? First of all, I agree with everything that Anne's just said. I think there is a confusion of terminology and understanding of what these terms mean. And again, it depends who you're talking to. As a sector, there are interested parties on both the asset owners and the asset managers who have allocated some costs uh, when they, they first took out the lease for decommissioning, which may be woefully undervalued by the time it actually comes around to uh, getting to the point whereby decommissioning has to happen. I think the push and the requirement, uh, both from us as uh, residents of the planet, but especially for the for the shareholders and the wider community of the asset owners from the point of view that they can't just leave the site in a, in a state which is no longer viable um, with the equipment and the plastic and leads, et cetera, still being on the seabed or in situ. So you end up with a situation whereby there is a, a much a social requirement and an ecological requirement as well as a, a practical need um, with regards to uh, getting decommissioning and recycling uh, used properly. Yeah, I think um, we haven't been so much involved in uh, offshore wind for decommissioning, but uh, certainly onshore wind would be involved in the discussions on decommissioning wind farms. And I think the question really for the asset owners is, in some cases, can they break even? So you've gone from having what was an asset to something that has become a potentially a liability. There's there's a large portion of the turbine that can be reused or you know remanufactured, but obviously the, the blades, which are the real headache, are seen then as a liability. And I think for the owners of these turbines, it's a case of trying to see if they can they can break even by cancelling out what, what still has value against what has become a liability. So it sounds like it's a really interesting challenge for the industry, but I guess the question is how important is it to people, you know, how high up the priority list of all the stakeholders and manufacturers and industry, how, how important do they feel this is? I think that's for them to say, to be honest. Um, but as a researcher, we, we can clearly see that there is an, a massive rise in initiatives that are currently ongoing on end-of-life management and recycling. How many did we find? About 20, 30 currently active? So it's a huge amount uh, that's, that's ongoing, which suggests that it is quite important to them 
And also we can clearly see that especially the UK government is really concerned about the liabilities since they are the decommissioner of last resort. So, so if the costs have been underestimated, and if a operator cannot fulfill that requirement, then they will have to step in. And at the moment, I believe the numbers are quite shocking. I think about just 2% of the costs are, are secured in assurances. So there's a lot of work to be done there, certainly from the perspective of government to feel comfortable with the situation. Excellent. Thanks for that, Anne. A really interesting point that the government is the, <laughs> the fallback for everybody. For this discussion topic, we would like to discuss the circular economy in terms of each stage of the offshore wind turbine life cycle, from manufacturing to operation to end of life. Here we would like to discuss, firstly, the current processes that are in place. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I think there are not enough processes in place. I think we could even probably take that further uh, which kind of brings in the whole issue of decarbonisation, for example, of understanding at the point whereby we construct a wind farm, what the impacts are in relation to the use of raw materials such as concrete, steel, as well as other particulates within the, uh, the build. And that's a mind shift, I think, from, from where we were and have been uh, with regard to the sector of saying, we're building green power, that's, a, that's great. But to do this properly and to get this wider circular economy process understood, You've got to go ahead and take it right the way back to, to a component point. And that means that the work and understanding of uh, being able to offset your carbon footprint and uh, create some sort of uh, decarbonisation mapping for everything that you put in the ground in relation to a wind turbine becomes very important as we go. So to answer your question, Lauren, apologies, I've kind of danced around that a little bit. Um, I don't think there is enough currently going on in relation to, to getting that map and that understanding in place uh, of how that starts to work. We're definitely trying and we're launching a joint industry programme in December, uh, which will start to address some of those things around the whole circular economy process, including decommissioning. As it currently stands, it's, I think, very much in its infancy uh, within this sector. From my research, I can certainly confirm that there is actually very little evidence that circular economy in the literal sense is being applied in, in offshore winds. But we can see that there are lots of strategies ongoing that could be sort of classed under circular economy, but that are not necessarily recognized as such. So, so just to give you a, like a quick rundown through the life cycle stages. So in terms of design, uh, we can see that there is more than 4,000 academic articles on the subject none of which is about circular economy, at least none of it actually mentions circular economy. Some of it is actually about eco-design, which is not the same as circular economy, you know, at least it's something in that territory. When we look at operations and, and maintenance stage, there is, I mean, there's a lot being written about that. But when we look at uh, circular economy strategies that would apply at the whole infrastructure scale, those are, for example, lifetime extension, repowering, uh, then the research on that is also still pretty early days, actually. Literally, it's just a few dozens of articles on those subjects. And when we look at sort of at the component level, uh, so, so basically what we're trying to do in a circular economy is, you know, during the O&M stages, of course, extend the lifetime as much as possible because that is one of the most effective means of reducing environmental impact. For example, repair is, is fairly well covered in the literature, but something like reuse, 16 articles currently, repurposing, non-refurbishing, non, you know, that would suggest that there's still quite a long way to go. And then when we move on to the end of life stage, then decommissioning, there's about uh, 90 articles, which I thought was pretty good given the stage at which we are in the industry. 
But again, you know, when we look at the literature on, on what we then are going to do with components at the end of life, then it is actually much about energy recovery. There's some about landfill uh, and there's some about recycling. But again, very little going on sort of at the higher levels of the waste hierarchy when we can create more economic, but also more environmental value. So that is where more effort should really be going in, in the next few years, ideally. I can't really speak for the terms of the manufacturing or the end of life for the offshore wind, but certainly we are uh, refurbishing parts for offshore wind turbines now. Uh, we're doing far more for onshore, but we have started to do parts for offshore wind turbines. And I think we're seeing mainly yaw gears, yaw calipers, uh, large gearboxes and hydromechanical parts. These are parts that we've invested time and come up with capability to recirculate parts uh, which would otherwise have been considered a uh, scrap. A great deal of time has gone into setting up these processes so that we can supply the parts back with a warranty so it's not like a owner-operator or uh, somebody doing a running repair to keep something going. It's they're, they're buying something that's an alternative to new. The parts are an alternative to you that are cheaper. They're normally uh, lower lead time. They are where possible packaged in such a way that the next set of used units can be returned in the same packaging. Um, I think that's the most important thing because the difficulty is that with the circular economy, you're introducing a new job to somebody who didn't have to do that before. So when we sell or refurbish part, the site technician never before had to package up things to send. They just had to dispose of parts. So you're now introducing an extra complication for somebody and you know, who's going to take that responsibility. And I think we've spent a lot of time with our customers discussing this about, you know, the person who orders the part is in a procurement department. They're not going to be taking charge of packaging up, making sure things are clean enough to return, making sure they're drained of oil. For us, we, we've had to go and find circular economy representatives within each company. And it doesn't necessarily need to be somebody in procurement or a technician. It might be someone from an environmental department, but it's somebody that reports back on what has failed if they know why it's failed, the position in the turbine, as much information as we can get so we can do some kind of failure analysis to make the whole process much, much easier. But certainly I think there's definitely been a, a big increase in the interest from offshore wind farm operators that there seems to be much more engagement on circular economy. I think there's possibly been external factors at play, whether that's just a focus on uh, the wind industry and uh, how people are performing. There's this talk with companies that have a green image but possibly aren't living up to that. So I think I think that's really come to the fore in the last year, I would say. Really interesting point you made there, Michael, about how you know somebody's got to do a job that they didn't have to do before, and with this idea of you know circular economy. So that leads me quite nicely onto the second question here: is what improvements can we make in line with the circular economy? I know that we've already had many discussions on the subject, and in terms of the designing for decommissioning, and um, with the you know the intent that these parts might be reused or recycled in some capacity, but. Um, Perhaps you'd like to expand on that a little bit more for us. Yeah, the design for decommissioning is, of course, the, you know, the most effective way to actually make sure that everything is in place so that we can actually use all of those circular economy strategies throughout the life cycle of a wind farm. That was really interesting, Michael, what you just said there. And, and one of the things that is essential in enabling circular economy 
is like you say, it's, it's actually people speaking with each other that normally may not be actually in contact. So in oil and gas, for example, we see this happening as well, that uh, somebody who is working in procurement and is making sure that an op somebody who is doing the operations has the things that they need, isn't necessarily speaking with uh, the person who is taking care of the decommissioning and the waste management. Uh, and if actually they were speaking with each other, then they would probably realize that they can save a lot of money and also would be faster and they would get a better quality of component as well. I think that's often underestimated that remanufactured and refurbished components are often better quality. They function better uh, than new stuff. So yeah, make, making sure that the right people are speaking with each other is definitely one important strategy in, in implementing circular economy. I would actually take it maybe back one step and say within offshore wind, we, we have a little bit of work to do still in terms of improving understanding of circular economy. So it's just that, and I really hate this word, but it is that educational piece to actually explain, look people, this is what the circular economy looks like. It's not just recycling. Uh, there's a lot more to it. And also that this is a good news story because they can make much more money from that. There's a lot to be won here from a circular economy approach by operators, but also by other companies throughout the supply chain and for the UK as a whole. This is a good step to make. I think you're right. There is a, a major education piece that's needed. I don't think we're, we're alone in this sector. I, th I think um, we've become much more aware over the last probably five to ten years of, uh, of the need to, to become much more understanding of, of how recycling works to start with. And then that evolves naturally into a more circular economy to, to a point whereby there is a demand both from the customers of companies that we're talking to and, and also the, the staff and the, and the management within, the, within those organizations which are just saying we have to become much more focused on, on creating a circular economy that makes sense to us as a business, that to our shareholders and that to the people that actually work for us and, and recognize us for where we are. I'll give you a good example of that. If, if you look at the oil and gas sector, for example, the oil and gas sector used to be very proud of the fact that they were an oil and gas sector. And you've seen over the, the last few years that companies such as um, Dong Energy, which is the Danish oil and gas group, has changed its name to Orsted. You've got uh, Statoil changing its name to Equinor. And these are real issues, much as, as, as the same where you've got the uh, chief exec of BP saying that the future is about renewable energy. These are not just simplistic statements. The, these are messages of intent to actually start to decarbonize their businesses, get to a point whereby the focus becomes much more geared and focal in relation to making sure that their businesses are exactly what they should be, a green company. You're seeing that in, in other areas as well. I know on the Humber, for example, that Orsted, who supply a lot of the energy for the major Emingham oil and gas plant run by uh, 66, they've actually created the hydrogen element within there which breaks down some of the power coming in to at least get the plant operating on a hydrogen basis rather than that of using uh, sort of oil and gas and uh, straight electricity. And that all came about because Orsted suddenly realized that what they were doing from Hornsey, which is the, the major wind farm uh, that will be powering um, Emmingham, uh, was hitting a buffer of an old energy understanding to a new one. So they, were, they basically went out of their way to create something that became uh, much more of, of this century and could actually have green credentials. And, and again, I think that's something else within this whole point of circular economy that we don't talk enough about. It's that green credential element. The thing that sort of says, 
proves to the business that um, much as you are wanting to be a, a green business, here are the credentials that justify why you are. And, and that's something, again, I think will start to fall out over the next couple of years as this gains momentum. Yeah, I think talking from an operational point of view and from a practical point of view, one thing that's really been quite complex for us has been information on component parts. So this is the component parts of the turbine and getting information from the manufacturer of those parts. So in some cases, it might be a part that is now discontinued or obsolete and drawings are not made available or part numbers are, you know, it's very, very difficult sometimes to get component parts and it makes it almost impossible. And in many cases, it might make a refurbishment or remanufacture impossible of that component, which means that component has to then go to waste because it's not viable to recirculate. Uh, so I think there should be an onus on the turbine manufacturers, but also the component manufacturers that if they're not going to go any further with that particular part, then that information should become available that then companies can recirculate these parts and they don't have to go to scrap or waste. Anne mentioned that, you know, companies could save a lot of money by looking into these aspects of circular economy. And as you said, Michael, as well, about the fact that somebody's got a, a job that they didn't have before, but there is a, a big discussion and a big drive for that economic benefit of not just the ability to save money or make more money, but also increasing the number of jobs in the circular economy as well. What you're saying there about those the parts and being unable to get them and things, I've heard discussions before about the idea that to try and get the circular economy going, we need the kind of a second-hand market, almost a database of who's got um, refurbished parts that could be used as well. Again, all kind of proposals that haven't seem to have quite led anywhere yet, which I guess leads nicely onto my third question here, which is what does the future of offshore wind look like in the next 10, 20 or 50 years? I think at the moment, the vast majority of the parts we're doing are for onshore wind, so you're going to see that replicate. The circular economy, I think, will be embraced more quickly with offshore because the circular economy is better established now than it was 10 years ago. So for all the onshore wind turbines who are now turning to circular economy, I think for offshore wind, by the time they get to that stage of life, it'll be something that's been, you know, pretty well established by then. So I think for operations, I think we're going to see more and more parts getting recirculated rather than new parts sold. Well, clearly the decommissioning is, is going to increase. So, so decommissioning of offshore wind will probably reach its first peak in the next seven to 10 years and then we'll have a little bit of a quieter spell and then we can see the next peak coming through uh, again sort of in the later 2030s but I mean obviously offshore wind is, is going to grow massively so I think it's, it's looking positive for them and I think that if at some point the scale of the turbines is going to stabilize more then there's also going to be much more potential to apply all of the circular economy strategies because now that if, if you have an ever bigger turbine obviously it's, it's difficult to reuse components directly because they're simply not you know not at scale and that, that does limit the circular economy potential at this moment but yeah who knows maybe in 10 20 years we reach the maximum size of a turbine uh, at some point the sky literally is the limit uh, so you know that, that will certainly uh, open new opportunities again airplane flight paths are the limit really but yeah, yeah. <laughs> i would add to uh, both michael and, and anne's points and, and agree with them completely i, I think if uh, if we were to crystal ball gaze and 20 or 30 years time i will be happily retired i'm pleased to say but uh, 
at the point where that does happen, the turbines most certainly will be bigger. They will, we're now sort of heading for 10 megawatt machines and I don't know, by then maybe 20 meg, not, not impossible from that perspective. And, and it's all down to physics of the height, the size, etc. But technology will, will improve. That's definitely a situation. We will move to floating wind much more effectively. I think that's something we recognise definitely here in the catapult, the importance of floating wind and why that will impact on the sector. And that means we move further and further offshore, uh, which reduces the amount of noise pollution and the impacts that has on, on different types of economies, including fish stocks and shellfish. But underlying all of that, I would hope that the turbines that we're building in 20, 30 years' time have got a reuse plan, are actually built with sustainable and well-understood carbon impact component parts and, and issues. I'd like to see the grey market and, and what Michael's talked about in relation to uh, the parts sector grow and flourish because I think at the moment we replace at the moment across the board new for new, which just doesn't make any sense to me in, in this sector. So I think from, from that point of view, where we are as a, as a sector, um, and I mentioned it before, is it's that green credentials thing. I'd like to see every sort of turbine that goes through the point of um, commissioning uh, to sort of start it up in, in the first instance, always carrying that, that green credential element within it to say to the point whereby we're looking at 80, 90% of the components which are in a decarbonized environment and more to the point of a, uh, a reuse or a recycling plan which fits towards the end of it. That would be a, a perfect scenario. So next question is, what more could be done? I mean, Michael's already suggested the fact that the supply chain and circular economy started to develop on onshore wind, and that will be quite easy to carry on to offshore. And as Steve's already alluded to, we've been looking into other industries, um, such as the oil and gas and automotive and aerospace. But are there any other best practices that we could bring to the end of use management of wind turbines for offshore renewable energy industry? I think we should have a situation whereby it's MBL, never be learning. You know, be in that situation whereby there is that continual push for green excellence and decarbonisation excellence uh, that, that we should be doing it for. But at the same time, we should be at the forefront. We should be pushing as a sector the fact that you know, I'm banging on about my green credentials again, but the, the fact that we are, do have some good leverage to say to the rest of the world, we can actually get this right. We can actually produce something which has got zero impact on the planet, zero impact on how we actually generate and, and reuse the, the elements which make up a, a turbine. So I don't think this chat should be about what we're doing wrong. I think we're doing quite a lot right, but there's always room for improvement. There's always room for learning not and again not just from our sector but uh, from outside of that yeah i think there's quite a lot we can learn from the aviation industry as well i mean i think if they're able to effectively implement a circular economy where they've got the extra factor of safety as a concern i think that shows that people can have confidence in investing in parts that are being recirculated rather than necessarily buying new all the time I think if that industry can really effectively implement a circular economy, then I think I think any other industry should be able to. So I think there's, there's probably quite a lot we could learn from that one in particular. I agree with that, Michael. I was also going to say aerospace, uh, but for a different reason. For the reason that they have so successfully used product service systems. So instead of selling, for example, uh, airplane engines, uh, they sell the time that that engine is, is working, they sell airtime. And I think that in offshore wind or in, in the wind sector in general, we're going to have to see a move towards product service systems. Legally, OEMs are responsible for the components, also at the end of use, especially for the electrical components. 
and it's, it's also therefore in their interest to actually use, uh, for example, a product service system. So they keep the ownership of those components and then they also have that drive to, to make sure that it's manufactured in a way that will continue to work for as long as possible. And again, that is really one of the best circular economy strategies uh, that, that we can take. The best strategy is actually to use less materials altogether, but that is perhaps a, a different challenge and also a challenge for perhaps a different moment in the life cycle of the sector as a whole. I would also mention oil and gas and not so much because there's so much best practice in oil and gas, because frankly, there isn't. Uh, but oil and gas is a really good example of how not to do it. And also what oil and gas shows very well is actually that we need better decommissioning guidance. And currently we see that much of the decommissioning guidance from oil and gas has been copied over to offshore wind. It's not functioning for a number of reasons and government really needs to step up to improve that. So it is not just a story of industry having to do X, Y, Z. There's a lot that industry is doing right, as Steve says. There's a lot that they can do better as well. And the same can be said for government. On that note of government and regulations and things, Anne, can you tell us a bit more about your research? Um, what are the major focus points of the work you're doing with the Worry Catapult? So I'm, I'm really happy to be working with the Catapult. So we have a project together called a Sustainable Circular Economy for Offshore Wind. So that's a project that is funded together with the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, uh, the Catapult and the Department for International Trade. Um, and this is a project that aims to start to integrate circular economy into the design and the operation and the end of use management uh, of offshore wind. And Basically, what we're doing is, is, is really it's a short project, it's only half a year, but uh, we are developing a framework for a circular economy in offshore wind because a lot of the circular economy strategies that don't necessarily translate one to one to, to the sector, there are some differences there. So, so there is a bit of translatory and additional work to be done. So we've done that. And now what we're doing is taking a baseline of the current circular economy practices in the sector. And the other thing that, that we're doing is working with government to see, okay, how can government actually help the sector to become more circular? Uh, so we're doing that through a series of events and other meetings. Also, there will be lots of analysis and, and co-production going on with industry and with government bodies as well, both in the UK, but also in other countries, uh, primarily in Germany, Denmark and, and the Netherlands as well. Uh, and I should not forget that we have quite a good context as well into Ireland and the USA. So we can bring all of that expertise together and really start to drive the momentum for a circular economy in, in offshore wind. All of that will hopefully also feed into your new five-year joint industry partnership on circular economy and wind systems, about which I'm sure Steve can explain more as well. Why you feel these research areas are so important and what do you hope that the final impacts of your results and your, your research will bring to industry? I hope that it will actually help the, the sector to progress and to become more sustainable and to really live up to the green credentials. It's really about creating that kind of positive momentum uh, to, to help the industry forward. And I hope that with this project, we can make a start with that but it's very much the, the start of a journey uh, and there's a lot of work to be done. And uh, yeah, there, there will be many years of research and co-production and basically progressing step by step that will have to happen. 
yeah, so if we can just make a start with that understanding where we are currently, then I think that would be a really good outcome from this project. And from that, we could then co-produce an, an agenda, a roadmap to move forward. That is, that is where I would like to go. And as Steve says, hopefully lead the way and drive those green credentials. Again, yeah, I think the work that uh, Anne's doing and the wider guys at Leeds University and others for that matter, I mean, it, it re-emphasizes this whole fact that, you know, there is some legacy point that comes out of the back of this stuff, which, you know, we're, we're at, the, at that right fulcrum point with it uh, that says we have to start to, to push hard on what we're doing. It has a wide impact on everything that we do and, and focus on. Whichever stage of the, of the development you're actually in, uh, with regard to the wind sector, it will touch everybody you know, from that perspective. So we're here definitely to support Anne and the programme that she's working on and the outcomes of, of that will have a huge bearing on on how the catapult actually operates in, in many years to come. Thanks, Steve. And on that, do you want to tell us some more about the work that Ori Catapult is currently carrying out in the circular economy arena? We, we've got three key programmes going on at the moment uh, within the Catapult. The first one, which I can talk about, which is run by my colleague, uh, Stuart Barnes, which is around decarbonisation. Uh, and that's looking at it more from the point of view of the decarbonisation point around port. Um, so if you think of uh, an offshore wind farm operating goods 15Ks offshore, etc., they are serviced and managed by SOVs and uh, CTVs, which are diesel-driven vehicles. Uh, so already you have an issue from the, a pure simplistic decarbonisation about how do we actually move away from, from that environment and what's happening around the port as a carbon build perspective to get to a point whereby that next stage of the entity starts to, to be broken down. That's a practical programme and we're working with the likes of uh, uh, Bibi Marine, Orsted and uh, some of the other big plays uh, around the Humber on that particular area and that will show some fruit and, and some outcome towards the summer of next year. That's quite exciting. That also brings in the impacts that hydrogen has in that space and what that will be, both from a production perspective, but also for fueling vessels and uh, port itself. And again, we've built the OMCE, the O&M Centre of Excellence um, in Grimsby, specifically to, to look at one of that as one of the key planks of the strategy down there. And that, that makes sense. Second element we have is, uh, and Anne's kind of alluded to this already, and that's the Q's programme. And that's the circular economy for the wind sector. Again, we're not just purely looking at the, the impacts here for um, what happens on offshore, which is very much at the focus of the catapult, but also from the point of view that you know, these turbines are carrying the same issues and the same problems, whether they're onshore or offshore. It's a, a UK-based programme, but we're already starting to work with our, our European colleagues at uh, Wind Europe and uh, the Moonshot programme. focuses on four key areas. The first one, which is around the cost strategy, so understanding if we were to decommission tomorrow, what that would actually be, where are the, the big areas for uh, decommissioning, how we can deconstruct that and start to go out to the supply chain to start to reduce some of those costs. The second one is about recycling and starting off with uh, blade recycling. And we're working with the Oil and Gas Technology Centre on that because, again, within their sector, they have got a learning issue in relation to understanding what to do with GRP and how that starts to work. But that programme will expand to build up a, a map of um, how recyclants are actually broken down and utilised um, as we go into uh, 2021. The third one is about monopiles and the end of life. So a monopile is a, a steel uh, tube um, sort of hammered into a, a sandbank and they've been given the sort of 25-year life scale. And we want to see what that really means. Can they actually be extended by another five, ten years? 
which again impacts on the decommissioning point um, that starts to break down. And then the fourth program is about uh, repowering. And the reason why repowering starts to make sense is because a lot of the round one wind farms that we actually have in the UK probably will not be repowered, but they make perfect environments to actually start to test and evaluate what would be the correct process for the larger farms in round two, three, and four uh, that would make more sense to actually start to implement. So that's the, the Q's program that, that is launched back in August this year. And we start to look at some of the key deliverables for that as we go into 2021. The focus of the third program uh, is a cross-catapult initiative, which is looking at wider decarbonisation of the sector, not only ours, but uh, the, the wider um, sort of manufacturing and sort of development sectors that are across the UK. We're involved purely from the, the wind sector to see how we can map out you know, that decarbonisation plan that I mentioned earlier, from the point whereby we look at raw material to the point whereby they're decommissioned, so that, that can actually be understood a lot better and how that starts to work and create a platform for how a circular economy can then therefore start to be built accordingly. So a lot going on uh, from, from our perspective within the catapult and something that uh, with the help of people like Anne and, uh, and Michael here on the call, uh, yeah, we expect to do a lot more as the, as the years come on. Excellent, yeah. And we, of course, also have the, the ETA project that we've set up with the, the Oil and Gas Technology Centre, which is the Energy Transition Alliance. So we have five projects on, underway under that program but two of them I guess are probably more relevant to this discussion about circular economy and one is looking at the composites recycling again um, an area that the oil and gas industry is interested in looking at but with a focus on wind turbine blades for you know scale and quantity of uh, composite recycling required again working with the National Composite Centre at the High Value Manufacturing Catapult as well, looking at cross-collaboration over three projects, I think, with them at the moment. And then the other one is looking at the supply chain as well, which if we're looking at a circular economy aspect, then if we can try and get that second-hand market maybe more into the supply chain, that would be a really good outcome as well. And on that point, Michael, could you please provide the listeners with some more information about the renewable parts journey? What is your USP and product offering for the industry? Renewable parts started almost 10 years ago and was actually called Recycled Renewables at the time. I think it was possibly a bit ahead of its time. There wasn't much stuff getting recirculated at that point. The business started in Argyle on the West Coast. Very quickly, there was a clear demand for parts and consumables for the wind industry in the UK. The business grew very quickly and moved to a warehouse and office in the central belt, dealing in mainly new parts and consumables. Around about three years ago, everything went full circle, so to speak, and the company could see a clear demand starting to come about for refurbished parts. I think the real breakthrough was a few years ago when, when the business stopped referring to parts as repaired. We stopped taking parts from customers and that customer expecting the same part back we started to brand stuff as refurbished the whole idea would be that we would hold a feedstock we'd have the refurbished part on the shelf and you would send a used part back as a part exchange when you buy a refurbished part i think it was the only way to make it really scalable i think if you're talking about repair there's really a limit on how much you can handle i think with refurbished parts we've been looking at you know, the top 15, 20 components and really setting up a production line, looking at the modes of failure, uh, working closely with Strathclyde University, a few other uh, bodies on how we can back up our warranties. 
the parts are then in stock and I think they're advertised uh, as an alternative to new with a saving on cost and a saving on lead time. It's taken a long time to really get the, the reverse logistics in place to make the circular economy work effectively. But I think now the, the business is at a point that it's, it's effectively able to manage a large volume of component parts of wind turbines uh, and recirculate them quite effectively. So at a good point now, we've just signed a lease to move into a premises, which is between four and five times the size of the building we're in uh, for the refurbishment centre and also the a logistics centre is also moving into a bigger premises next year, so the whole business is moving with the times. I think component parts are getting physically bigger as well. There's quite a lot to deal with. That's really great to hear how companies develop so successfully. How have you been working with ORE Catapult and how have we supported you in your endeavours? Our chief executive, uh, James Barry, I think has been in contact more with Catapult than I have. Catapult have facilitated connections for us which have been invaluable helped with uh, all the recent successes certainly over the last year to 18 months i think that's going to continue as what looks like we're going to move into turbine decommissioning for onshore wind very soon michael Anne, and steve thank you for taking part in today's episode and the very interesting discussions it's now time to de-energize until next month in the meantime listeners can find out more information about michael's work at renewable parts on their website www.renewable-parts.com and learn more about ORE Catapult's activities at ore.catapult.org.uk and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult.